Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening. I'm Yvonne Staff, and I welcome you to Contemporary Science Issues and Innovations. Tonight, we discuss a very timely issue, the problem of discerning scientific fact from misinformation. Our guest is philosopher Lee McIntyre, research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School, and author of several books that he'll discuss tonight. Dr. McIntyre has received multiple teaching awards and has served as executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. In his books, he's applied his philosophical perspective to the issue of scientific fact. His latest book, The Scientific Attitude, describes how we can and must develop the mentality that will help us to accept scientific certainties and uncertainties. We are very pleased to welcome Lee McIntyre. Welcome, Dr. McIntyre. Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay. I'd like to start by asking about scientific attitude. What is that exactly? Okay. So I came up with the idea that uh, what was really distinctive about science was something that I call the scientific attitude, which is the idea that scientists care about evidence and that they're open to the idea of using evidence to change their beliefs. Um, I think that this is something that's distinctive about science because if you look at uh, the pseudosciences, you look at uh, science deniers, uh, it's the second part of that that they mm -hmm. really don't do. They maybe profess that they care about evidence, but what they're not willing to do is to change their views when the evidence doesn't go their way. Okay. So we, it's a change of mentality, a really important one if we look at it historically, right? In terms of that evolution of this mm -hmm. attitude, can you give us a couple of examples? Like sure. Yeah, so the, the interesting idea here is that if you think about it, human beings are wired up uh, through with cognitive bias to believe what we want to believe. We believe things based on what others tell us. We believe things based on our intuition. Um, and, and these, as uh, Daniel Kahneman talked about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. these sort of this fast way of thinking is wired into us. Uh, science is a slow way of thinking. Science uh, allows us to say, uh, despite what our ideology uh, says, despite what maybe we want to believe, um, that maybe we're not entitled to believe that because we have to compare it with the evidence. And that's really an amazing thing, if you think about it. The ability to say, I want to believe that X is true, but I'd better check with the evidence first, and if the evidence doesn't agree, then I can't. I want to give you an example of something that is back that I thought sure. isn't back, but I just learned today that uh, for example, we had a long history of astrology. Astrology mm -hmm. told you what, right. what to expect in the future and stuff. You could understand it. Replaced very gradually by astronomy. Right. And so you think <laughs> astrology, you don't see that in the newspapers and things anymore. But it's back, apparently, in the millennial generation. So what would be the difference? How, how would, in terms of the thinking, could you just explain that? 
Yeah, so the, I mean, this is, a, this is a classic example of the difference between science and uh, pseudoscience, or Karl Popper, others have spoken about this. So if you think about what happens with astrology, uh, maybe they make a number of different predictions, maybe they make very vague predictions mm -hmm. on the theory that you're gonna, your cognitive bias for uh, confirmation, called confirmation bias, is going to kick in, and whatever they say about you in a very vague way is going to convince you, oh, you're right, that prediction that, that you made with the astrology is uh, correct about me. So in a way, they're using evidence to confirm what they already want to believe. In science, it doesn't work that way. Uh, in science, uh, one looks at evidence uh, to, to test, to compare, to see if the theory is correct. Now, it doesn't always work, and scientists are human beings, and maybe they want their theory to be true. They have confirmation bias as well. But the point is that um, in science as a whole, uh, science as a practice, the community of scientists, uh, they don't tolerate that. They check one another's work. There are yeah. community standards of peer review, uh, data sharing, replication, that doesn't allow something to go through. Um, if I, I defy you to get out the astrology charts, which still exists in some newspapers, uh, cover up the whatever sign you are, read it, <laughs> right. and you'll find, oh, that really applies to me. Exactly. So what ha how do people interact with their newspaper astrology? They look for what their sign is, they read it, and they say, wow, they got it right. But if they had mixed them up at random, they still would have thought that they got it right. Exa That's not yes, science. Right. So scientists, you just said, have the same kinds <laughs> of do. problems, being human. They do. And so there's a long history, it still exists, where new things like the atom or tectonic plates that explain the earth or neutrinos, a whole slew of things the scientific community got up in arms and rejected all that stuff. And yeah. it was very painful for a lot of people. What is the difference there? So in, in terms of those kinds of changes, the scientific yeah. community. It, it, it's a great question because um, one thing that I argue in the scientific attitude is that it's not just ensconced in the individual scientist mm -hmm. attitude, it's, it's community. It's, it's a set of values, a set of norms and, and practices in the entire community. So even if one particular scientist resists, then uh, maybe the community gets it right. Now, you bring up a really great point because sometimes the whole community gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, on tectonic plates, uh, the resistance to Galileo, uh, the resistance to the germ theory of disease. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes, I, yeah, I talk yeah. about uh, these sorts of yes. examples in the book. And these are really, <laughs> these are really uh, fascinating to me mm -hmm. because I think that what they show is that uh, in science, we are dealing with human beings. We're dealing with all of the same built-in biases and resistance uh, that any human being has to a new idea. But here's the difference. In science, there's a way to test it. Now, mm -hmm. sometimes it takes way too yes, long. Definitely. And as we look back, we'll say, you know, what were they thinking? Why did they resist the germ theory of disease right, right, for right. a decade? It just, it doesn't make any sense, okay? Um, or we look back at Galileo and think, what more did you need than to look through the telescope and see the moons of Jupiter, you know, to understand? Mm -hmm. uh, so we look back today with our knowledge and we think, well, those, those people were just foolish. But the truth is that uh, it's really this built-in response that human beings have to resist new ideas. The beauty of science is that we have a way to adjudicate those disputes on evidential grounds. Uh -huh. We have a way of not just saying, well, this is what I think, this is what you think. Uh, we have a way to figure it out. And here's the important point about the scientific attitude. We change our mind. Eventually, mm -hmm. over time, mm -hmm. when the evidence tells us that our old view was wrong, 
we change it. Or uh, as Thomas Kuhn said, sometimes the, the older folks die off <laughs> and they take their bad ideas with them. But the point is that um, it's the second part that I talked about with the scientific attitude. We do allow evidence to change our beliefs and that's what's really important about science. And just on that, it took originally as the scientific community evolved, it would take a long time for people yes. to come around to these things. That's right. Today, do you think that young people going into scientists are taught to be more open to uncertainty, to possibilities, yeah. to correction? It, it, it's an interesting question uh, how scientists are taught. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, the first, we're all taught science in school, starting in elementary school. And I remember not being taught about how science worked, but about what scientists had found. Yes. That these are the results. Aren't we lucky that we exist that in the era I in see. which all truth has finally exactly. been discovered, right? <laughs> but, but then you think every era feels like that. Mm -hmm. they, they all uh, imagine that, you know, how lucky they were to, to be born into that era. So I'm not sure that scientists are taught in that way, but, um, but here's the difference. If you are if you don't want to be humiliated, if you want to put your uh, theory out there to be tested, and you don't want to be shown to be wrong, you'd better test it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that uh, is part of what makes scientists on an individual level embrace the scientific attitude to the extent that they can, which is this. In science, it's this very interesting uh, conglomeration of being open to new ideas, but, uh, but being skeptical of new ideas until they're tested. Mm -hmm. So scientists have to do both at the same time. Carl Sagan talked about this a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. it, it's a very interesting uh, uh, kind of a bifurcation that they have in their attitude because Sagan said you have to be open but to new ideas, but your mind shouldn't be so open that your brains fall out, right? <laughs> so, but, but you also have to be skeptical because you can't just go chasing down you know, every hypothesis if it has no evidence. And so I think that that's something that science by and large gets right. It does take too long. You know, you look at continental drift, you look at the case of Harlan Bretz or Ignaz Semmelweis that I talk about in my book. Right, right. It takes way too long for this to happen sometimes. But as I said, eventually the field comes around and that is a mark in favor of science. And the other thing is that in some cases you can't prove things. A lot of stuff in theoretical physics cannot That's be right. proven right now. You think that the community is maturing in that respect, that the scientific community community is um, more receptive, we're getting better at it? I, I'm, I'm not sure they're better. Okay. Uh, I, I think that one thing that, uh, that is better now um, is simply that uh, information is shared more freely. Uh, uh, scientific papers, we yeah, don't have to yeah. wait until the paper comes out and then read it and then you know, respond through mail. Uh, now uh, things are, are on the internet. Yes. People don't build on bad work as much as they used to. There's yeah. retractionwatch.org. Yes. So people can tell yes. when there's been a mistake. So it happens much faster. And I tell the story in, uh, in the book about cold fusion, which was an example from not that many years ago, I guess it was 20 or 30 years yeah. ago, where it didn't take that long for scientists to correct the problem. So uh, it's not necessarily that they're um, that they have a different mentality, it's just that they're a little bit faster because information is uh, is shared more uh, more freely or, now. Or, and there are ways to prove certainly some things. You brought up also the, the famous measles, the, the vaccine yes. thing. Could you recount that story as well? That was a case where somebody really got in trouble for misinformation. Yeah. So Andrew Wakefield uh, had this study with only 12 participants in it. Um, where he uh, thought that he showed, or he alleged to have shown, that there was a link between vaccines and autism. 
Um, this, of course, was a, was a very uh, disturbing finding, and it, and it was tested and retested, and nobody has ever been able to repli replicate his right. finding. It has been, as effectively as a finding can be, debunked. Now, here's the interesting thing about his study. It was not only sloppy in that it was too small and, you know, all the participants were ones who already had autism, which is not the way to run a controlled experiment. It then came out that the participants in the experiment were funneled to him through an organization, through a lawyer who had a financial interest in, as Wakefield did himself, in showing that there was something wrong with the MMR vaccine. So that's a big conflict of interest. And it later came out that, in fact, this was a fraud. So it wasn't yes. just sloppy, it was right. fraud, which makes it appalling yes. that all these years later, people are still citing yeah, the work. Uh, people are still, because once something like that uh, gets done, uh, the, the idea you, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, mm -hmm. and no matter how much it's debunked, uh, there are always going to be people who say, well, oh, it's a conspiracy. You'll now hear uh, anti-vaxxers say, well, the CDC paid off the Institute of Medicine to suppress the data yes, on thimerosal. Yes, this is really frustrating. And, and, yeah. and I do talk about in the book about some of the debunking. They did remove thimerosal from vaccines, um, and the yeah, autism right. rate did not, exactly. uh, uh, did not go down. Right. So I think that uh, that's at least some sort of evidence. But then the conspiracy theorists come in and say, well, if thimerosal wasn't dangerous, why did they remove it? So you, you know can't that you, win just, with you, that. you you cannot uh, convince right. people yeah. uh, sometimes even with uh, even with the data, um, but as I said, for cold fusion for uh, for Wakefield, which was was fraud. Cold fusion wasn't really fraud, but Wakefield was. The scientific community has the values and has the procedures to ultimately find out the right answer. In, in certainly in, in, in a good many cases of uh, uh, that sort, that was a particularly interesting one. That one, for me at least, is very interesting because we're dealing with correlation, so people see mm -hmm. autism, and a lot of these people were educated people, and, oh, that, yes. the, uh, and oh, yes. that was very troubling. Uh, and so even with clear debunking, he, I think he lost his license, it was a very serious case, and clearly that, that vaccine had nothing to do with autism, yeah. but people kept noticing, well, after they got the vaccination, then the, that appeared yeah. for the wrong reasons. And it, it this did. is peculiar. The, the correlation problem is a problem. Well, the, the correlation problem is a problem throughout science. Yes. Science can never prove anything. Yes. Uh, science can find correlations of a you know, higher d degree of accuracy. There's a technical problem in, uh, in uh, reasoning the problem of induction anytime that you're looking for uh, empirical data to back up a hypothesis it's always possible that there are more data out in the world that are going to overthrow your theory this happened to newton famously mm -hmm. when, when einstein came along and so sometimes people will ask on climate change or in vaccines well how do you know that the next right, study won't right, show right, right. that we're right and especially when you know fear gets a hold exactly. of people in this case yeah. but i think that what you need to do in in such a case is recognize that there's always uncertainty in science, but that that uncertainty can be measured uh, yeah. through probability and statistics. And that what they've, act when I say that the, the study has been, uh, that Wakefield study has been debunked, what I mean is that there have been studies of the correlation which have found, you know, yes, there are cases in which uh, children are vaccinated and then get autism. But that's but, not. But, but it's not due to right. uh, the vaccination. Yeah. Um, it's it's, it's, a, it's a, a, what scientists call a naive correlation. Exactly. And if it's your child 
It, yes. It's very hard <laughs> to, to think that, you know, there's no correlation there. Exactly. But uh, the one example that I heard, one, one analogy I heard was, it would be like saying that um, colonoscopies called Alzheimer's, caused Alzheimer's disease. It's the same, I mean, you know, we start to get colonoscopies ab about, you know, 10 years before yeah, people start right, being diagnosed. Right, right. But, but, but it doesn't mean that exactly. there's, a, a, there's a, a causal, causal link. Exactly. Okay? But, um, you know, if you look at it in that way, uh, what scientists do is they have a rational way of responding to whether or not something's what's called statistically significant. And there is no statistically significant correlation between vaccines and autism. Right. That's been shown. Right. Here's another thing. Now we have a huge amount of very compelling evidence mm -hmm. for climate change. We do. This is why what? they call it denial. Yes. Right. Th this, this is why they call it denial. Because exactly. no matter the evidence, um, uh, I, I often say that conspiracy theory, theorists have a double standard of evidence. Yeah, that's a good um, point. They're, yeah. they're not actually skeptics, so they like to paint themselves as skeptics or, you know, the next Galileo, they're yeah, the ones right, who are going to yeah. find the answer. But the double standard is this. Um, no evidence is enough to convince them of something they don't want to believe. But no evidence is really required. They're actually quite gullible in believing things that they do want to believe, yes. like that there's a conspiracy uh, about yes. climate change. So if you look at the sorts of examples that um, uh, any uh, people who are against climate change bring up, science deniers about climate change, um, they'll cherry pick data or they'll mm -hmm. talk about some mm -hmm. sort of a conspiracy theory. But that's not actually the way that, that's not a good scientific way uh, to reason about it. That's, a, uh, that's a, a relatively lazy way to reason about it and it's based on their ideology. It's mm -hmm. because of, mm -hmm. uh, of what they want to believe. Well, the, so what do we do in an era where people have to think more objectively, more critically, have to look at evidence uh, and in one of your other books here, you bring up one of the big problems, but mm -hmm. what do you do about this? Yeah, so this is the question everybody wants the answer to. Uh, I think the New Yorker and the Atlantic both had uh, articles in the last couple of years called Why Aren't People Convinced yeah. by Facts? Right. Yeah. And the answer is that you really, you don't convince somebody who doesn't believe in evidence based on presenting them with more evidence. It, do, it doesn't work. So, so you, then you think, why, are, why do people have the beliefs that they have if they're not willing to be convinced by evidence? Most people, I think, their beliefs about the empirical world are based on identity. Uh, they're based on trust. They're based on, uh, at some level, what they want to believe. Um, that is a very scary thing. And mm -hmm. I think it's been that way for a long time, mm -hmm. and I think it's that way for a lot of us on a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. So if you look back at the rise of science denial over the last several decades, it's not that people in the 1950s formed their beliefs based on evidence. It's that they trusted scientists, mm -hmm. that scientists were authority figures, that they figured that they knew what they were talking about. But now that trust has eroded. Mm. And since that trust has eroded and they no longer trust scientists, then the question is, who do they trust? Where do they get their ideas from? The dangerous thing that happens now is that any idea that you have, you can find confirmation for on the internet. You can find, go to find some silo, find some group of people who tell you that you're absolutely right if you think that, uh, that's right, <laughs> if you think that uh, Wakefield's study was suppressed mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, was actually correct. If you think that um, the, the climate change uh, uh, is, is a hoax. Um, the evidence for climate change, uh, Reuters just reported the other day, uh, is at the five sigma level, which mm -hmm. means it's a million <laughs> to one chance, a million to one chance 
that uh, the climate change deniers are right. So yes, in science there's always a chance, but that's not good reasoning. No, uh, right. Scientific reasoning is based on justification, which is uh, warrant given the evidence. Um, you wouldn't, you know, if you wouldn't uh, place your life on a one in a million chance. So I don't understand why uh, climate change deniers are willing to say, you know, well, uh, it's, it's probably not true or it, it might not be true, so let's not prepare for it. It's really the, the wrong way to reason about it. It's the ideological way to reason about it. It's the, it's the bane of science's existence from Galileo's time to it's, the present. Yeah, yeah. Religious ideology, political ideology, yes. any sort of ideology that tells us the answer without checking the data, that goes against the scientific attitude. Where do we stand in the United States compared to other countries? Do you know other advanced yeah. nations? We're, that have we're number one uh, in uh, terms of denial. In terms I know, of denial, especially right. that uh, issue in general. Do we we have more problems with accepting uh, uh, fact? There, there's some polling data that I've seen on this which suggested that the United States was number one on climate change Absol denial. Uh, denial, yes, denial, denial yes. number one. Uh, we're actually number two of denial of evolution. Turkey uh, yes. is, is worse. Turkey, Tur is Turkey won't allow well. <laughs> uh, teaching evolution in, in the public schools. It's and actually illegal. And a lot of illegal. people want, it, want, it, want, it, uh, it, want the, the biblical version brought back in this country. Right. Yes. Um, it, it's strange that the, the most enlightened nation on climate change is China which is yes. the worst polluter. It, it, it is at this, um, yeah. So uh, there, so, and, and I, I couldn't go down the list of, uh, because I'm not sure the polling has been yeah, done right, right, right. for all the different yes. types of science right, denial because right. they usually break it down by, you know, do you believe this, do you believe that? Um, but, but in the United States, there's a very uh, uh, heady group of people who deny uh, science. And the interesting thing that, that I've found in, in uh, in recent weeks, in, in recent uh, months, as I've been uh, meeting with them, talking to them, is that it's the same type of reasoning. If you look at the science deniers about climate change, about uh, anti-vax, about evolution, even about flat earth, they all use the same type of reasoning. Uh, this reasoning was identified by the, uh, the Hufnagel brothers, um, by uh, Cook, by Lewandowski. There's some, there's some research on this talking about, and I'm not sure I can name them all, but that there are five um, tropes of science denial. One is belief in conspiracy theories, another is cherry-picking, another is having an unreasonable standard, and, and there are two others that I can't remember off the top of my head. But the point is, if, if you go talk to people in these various communities, they exhibit the same types of reasoning, and then get angry, right? I, so I get hate mail from anti-vaxxers, I get hate mail from climate change deniers, because they don't want to be compared to flat earthers. And yet the type oh, of reasoning the that they're using mentality. is exactly. the same. It is Absolutely. the same. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, I can't help but ask here, because you, you mentioned it before yeah. we got started, that you are working on this issue uh, yourself right now. Yes. Uh, you said you talk to flat earthers and so on. Yes, Could you just give us a little, sure. you, I mean, you brought up these yeah. five points, but did it surprise you to encounter this mentality? Well, it, it surprised me that they existed. And once yeah. I found out that they were having a convention in Denver in November yeah. 2018, I signed up. And I went and I wore the badge, and the first day I kept my mouth shut yeah. and just and listened to what they had to say because they claim that it's about evidence, it's not yes, faith-based. Yes, so right, I wanted to listen right. to what their evidence was. But the second day, I engaged them in conversations, um, not about evidence per se because I'm not a scientist and face it, if the evidence for the round earth has been around for 2,300 <laughs> years, they, they know what the evidence is. 
Instead, I engaged them uh, as a philosopher would. I wanted to know what their, what their reasoning was. So the question I asked them was, what evidence would it take to prove that you were wrong? And they really were flummoxed by that question, really oh, couldn't answer very that question. Yes. Because I wasn't saying, uh, I wasn't picking on the confirmation bias. I was picking on the idea that they needed to, to, to do what a scientist would do, which is to say, if you find this, then I'll give up my belief. I've written about all this uh, in an article that's uh, in Newsweek uh, this week. Okay, uh, it's I this week, the whatever, June 11 or June the, whatever it is June, the up. June 14th cover oh, thank story you. in Newsweek. Thank you. Thank and it's you. called The Earth is Round But Science Denial is Growing. Yes, okay. It's distressing that in a country that developed so much in science yeah. that uh, we have this other mentality. It's just another universe. We have one more problem in this country that maybe has contributed to this problem, and that is advertising. Two things, actually. Advertising, which has a long history of misinformation. The cigarette industry is, is a good example. And then the other is very deliberate misinformation at the governmental level. Can you tell us anything about that? Uh, the, uh, particularly, has that influenced this it, kind of population? Has. Okay. Be because I think that that's, in fact, what is science denial has existed since Galileo, since before. Yeah. Modern science denial started in the 1950s with the cigarette companies resisting ah, the idea that um, cigarette smoking caused lung cancer. And they hired a public relations expert to come speak to them about what they could do. And he recommended fight the science. Uh, yes. Start a, uh, a, you know, your own think tank, if you will. Uh, take out full page ads in the newspaper. And that, as Naomi Oreskes talked about okay. in her book, Merchants of Doubt, yes. became the blueprint for science denial in this country on climate change, on evolution. Um, and then, as I argue in my book, Post-Truth, that became the blueprint for uh, post-truth. So I think that science denial uh, was so successful in this country that it led people to say, you know what, if we can deny the truth about climate change, about cigarettes, we can deny the truth about anything. We can right. deny the truth about whether or not the stock exchange did or did not right. open the day after 9-11, right. or how many people were at inauguration. We can right. deny anything. Right. I have to ask you as we mm -hmm. close here, you brought up something that may not be familiar <laughs> to the general public, but in your book that about postmodernism, and it seems like such an important point. Can you tell us sure. what that is and what it did that it shaped this? Yes, yeah, so, so that's in my book, Post-Truth, mm -hmm. and I talk about one of the roots of post-truth being science denial. Um, cognitive bias, the decline of uh, traditional media, the rise of social media are other ones. But the fifth, I think, is postmodernism. So postmodernism is this idea that really came out of literary criticism in mm -hmm. the 1980s, which was, um, th there are really two theses of it, I, I think. One is the uh, Derrida's idea that there is no truth to the text, that the author doesn't know what the meaning of the text is, that, that it's socially constructed through the dialogue between the reader and the text, and there can be different okay. truths for different readers. Okay. So basically, truth is relative. There is no truth. But, but was that to do with, say, fiction predominantly, well, fiction. or just generally? But, but then, that, uh, then the second thesis was uh, Foucault's idea yeah. that all uh, claims of truth are therefore a political, it's a kind of bullying, a kind of grab okay. for power. What happened is that those ideas got changed over from literature to human behavior yeah. 
to science, yes. where it uh, then something called the science wars uh, in the 1990s, where people were using these ideas that, um, to attack the idea that science was telling the truth. And then an another interesting migration happened, which was that these ideas really started in the left and they migrated to the right. Um, there are now, I think, right-wing postmodernists, which is might seem like an anachronism. And postmodernists, by and large, don't like this. And, yeah. and I'm not claiming that, um, that they caused this. I'm saying that their views have been misinterpreted and borrowed. Um, but it does exist now, I think, where these ideas that you could question whether there was such a thing as truth. Yes. I think that you can draw a straight line between that idea yes. and alternative facts yes. or uh, truth isn't truth or Absolutely. other slogans that you've heard right. coming from the right wing. Right. It's this idea that, well, if truth doesn't exist and it's all subject to interpretation and politics, then let's just do that. Yes. And I think that's a, that's a very dangerous trend. You can, even, you can see it in the work of um, uh, Lynn Cheney, who wrote a, oh, a, a yeah. book yeah. way back when excoriating the postmodernists uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, I forget when the book yeah. was, but now those ideas seem more acceptable on the right. Yes. So, I mean, that evolution has happened right, as well. Right, right. And it's very curious. I was really delighted that you brought this up because we don't see that much yeah. connection with academic stuff, uh, you know, yeah. so much. But it was really important. Please keep writing by all Thank means. Thank you very much. And if you come up with a solution, how we, well, you'll be a very wealthy man if you uh, <laughs> come up with a solution of how to get people over this hurdle. Uh, that again, I guess we are all we all have the problem. But if you develop a different mindset, as you suggest, you're a good way there, right? It's, it's, what, it's what I'm working on next. With the my, I wrote this book at least in part to help scientists and others who care about science to think about how they were defending science. Yes. I think that we need to talk more about values and less about logic and method. Yeah. Um, we need people to trust us, to, yeah. to interact one-on-one, -on -one, to engage with science deniers. I think that's the only way that we're going to convince anybody. I can't resist asking about this. You'd mentioned this a little bit uh, earlier, too, that you said the way that we approach this may yes. be a mistake. We can't hit people over the head with the truth. And you mentioned, yeah. how should we handle that? So uh, there, there's been empirical work on this. Um, uh, the, the phrase hitting people over the head, I mean, it, it depends on how you do it. Um, it the, the studies have shown that you can't insult people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you don't want to make them feel stupid because, face it, that doesn't help you build trust. Mm -hmm. But that, in fact, you do need to hit people over the head in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, not hit them in the head, but, but slip them the truth as you're building trust, mm -hmm. right? Because people do become convinced by evidence. I mean, that's the really interesting part of this for me. People do change their mind on vaccines. People do change their mind mm -hmm. on climate change and on evolution. Mm -hmm. and, and I really study those cases to see how they did it because I, I want to understand. Mm -hmm. It's almost always on the basis of individual trust and individual communication. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's been a measles outbreak, as is well known, oh, yeah. in Clark County, Washington, mm -hmm. and, and other places mm -hmm. in the U.S. All I think there are up to 1,000 yeah. cases right. now in the U.S. But in Clark County, Washington, they sent out public health officials to workshops, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, with uh, vaccine deniers, just to talk to them about the science, uh, but also to build trust. Mm -hmm. And there was an account in the Washington Post of people who said that they changed their mind on the basis of these workshops, because it was the first time that anybody had ever really taken their doubt seriously and had ever really bothered 
to, to explain it. Sometimes if you just listen to people, and, yeah. and then, but then you tell them the facts. You yeah. don't say, oh, well, maybe you're right, because yeah. they're not. Right. But, but you, you help get the facts in that way. That's really what uh, changes people's mind. Right now, we're very fragmented. We're very polarized yes. in this country. Yes. And so the two sides are not talking to each other. One effort that I, I'm making it for my next project, my next book, it's called How to Talk to a Science Denier. I'm going out and having these conversations because I'm trying to convince people uh, what's special about science. It, it's very hard to build trust. Um, it's hard to be the maybe only person who believes in the global earth at a, at a uh, flat earth convention. That's not an ideal format to do that. But you know, I do uh, plan to uh, have more engagements like this because I think that this is the, the model that you don't just talk about scientific values, you try to embody them by being open and having conversations and testing ideas, and this is what I plan to do. Well, best of luck. Thank I, you. Uh, it's much needed, and thank you very much, and thank you for joining us tonight. You have Thanks. a very hectic schedule I with do. all of this. Thank you. Thanks, I enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.